Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano, who is calling in not from Edinburgh. Where are you, Frank? David, I am in Charlottesville. I'm on the outskirts of Charlottesville, Virginia. I have a research fellowship at Monticello, where uh, at the moment I'm on research leave this semester, so I apologize to you who are not <laughs> on leave. Uh, 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 but I am um, I'm here trying to finish my book manuscript. Well, I can think of no better place for you to finish this book on, on Jefferson and Washington than uh, in Jefferson's hometown. That's true. Yeah. I can sit. I, I, mean, I don't want to sound like Sarah Palin, who's recently been in the news, but I can actually see Monticello from my house. <laughs> <laughs> well, that should be an inspiration. Yeah, uh, right. So uh, one of the latest, uh, most recent uh, fronts on the culture war has been libraries. Uh, according to the American Library Association, there's been a dramatic rise in uh, book bannings at American libraries in the past year. There have been protests at libraries over uh, both the, the contents of the books and the programming at libraries. Uh, so we thought we this week we'd look at the histories of libraries in the United States uh, and colonial antecedents and talk about the place it has in American society. Uh, Frank, I know you're a, a big fan of libraries uh, as, as I guess all nerdy academics are. Uh, so I think this is a topic that's near and dear to both of our hearts. Absolutely. David, do you know how many libraries there are in the United States? I do not. How many libraries are there in the United States? According to the American Library Association, there are 117,341 libraries. Now, that was as of a couple of years ago. Um, the vast majority of these are school libraries, hmm. um, which I think we'll be talking about. 94,000 of them are school libraries, approximately. There are about 3,500 academic libraries. There are 9,207 uh, public libraries. And there are a whole lot of other, well, not a huge number, but it's, but there are kind of specialist libraries. So mm -hmm. there are libraries on military bases and, uh, you know, the American Medical Association's library or things mm -hmm. like that. So there, there are a number of kind of, um, if you will, specialized libraries as well. But there are 117,000 libraries in the United States, more than 117,000 at least as far as the figures I was able to find. I work this out as a, as a ratio of libraries per person. Okay, uh, libraries per person. Okay. Yeah, and, and if my calculations were correct, and um, I'm a library guy, not a math guy, so it's entirely possible my calculations are not correct. But as as I've worked it out, there are uh, there's one library for every 2,832 people in the United States at the moment, which is actually quite good. Yeah. Uh, I thought, and I tried to find the equivalent figures for the UK just by way of comparison, because I think there are there are a lot of parallels between the development of libraries in the United States. And, and in the UK, and because we live in the UK, I thought that would be interesting. And it's trickier. So in the UK, um, at the moment, there are about 4,145 public libraries. There are another 944 academic libraries. Um, and so that puts us at, I don't know, about 5,200 libraries, something like that. Um, the problem is there are no figures in the UK for school libraries. Hmm. And of course, as the American figures would indicate, school libraries are actually the biggest category of libraries. And you and I both have had kids who've gone to school in the UK. There are school libraries in the UK. So this is a, this is in some I'm, schools, in some schools, yeah. but I'm not I'm not comparing like for like necessarily. Uh, but the ratio of libraries that we can count and the population of the UK is one to 13,000. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, I think that's because you're excluding school libraries. So I went further. 
I did a dig. I, I did a, a really a, a deeper dig on this, and I took out the um, the uh, school libraries from the American figure to try and see whether the because I to compare like for like. And when you do that, you end up with one library per fourteen thousand people in the United States. And as I said, it's one library per thirteen thousand in the UK. So they're roughly equivalent and this is where geography figures again in the united states i think you know the the, the uk while it has substantial uh, areas of uh, countryside preserved it's a largely urban mm. uh, country in terms of where people live and so the population density i think partially explains this and that's not necessarily the case in the united states so there's some figures for us that it's grist for our mill i don't know well, whether you know you bringing that up makes me think of an experience i had um 10 or 12 years ago during the, the Civil War sesquicentennial, there was a program through uh, the National Endowment for the Humanities to work with public libraries, to bring in historians to talk about the Civil War. And I was asked to, to participate in a very small town in North Dakota, a town that had a population of maybe 100 people, but it had a public library. Now the public library is about the size of my office. Uh, but but it was important for that town, which didn't have much of anything, because it only had 100 people. But it had a it had a you know a small grocery store and it had a public library, uh, and I thought that was a sort of an intriguing sort of uh, you know space thinking about you know what role that public libraries have in, in American society. Well, I think that's right, and I think that's one of the themes that's going to come out of our talk today. That certainly until very recently the library and public libraries were kind of really important institutions in, in, in communities large and small in the United States and open to all, et cetera. Uh, I mean, with, with some caveats. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, but, but, um, and so the, the, the importance of the library in, in, in American life is, is quite significant. And again, there's some polling data about this as well, where, you know, in terms of, I don't know, I was in preparing for this episode, I saw some of this, I didn't note it down with the same um, conscientiousness that I did the figures I just cited, but something like 70% of Americans, you know, use libraries and like libraries people, mm. it, it, notwithstanding the current um, debate about the, about which books should be in libraries in general, Americans like public, li like libraries, public and otherwise. It's, a, it's um, the first thing I do when I move to a new place is get a public library card. Right. Yeah. Um, Were you, uh, so as a kid, when you lived in New York, I mean, I assumed you used the New York public library. Did you use the big one or did you I, use I a branch did. library? So I, I both. Um, I remember going to the, the public library, the local one on 94th Street, I think it was. Um, but also I did use the big New York City public library. Uh, I remember did a project on a, earthquake in Guatemala and I went there with the person I was doing the seventh grade science project with doing research there and I've done research there uh recently for for the, one of the books I wrote I used some of the manuscript sources there uh so uh yeah I, I use the New York public Boston Public Library also a very impressive building not maybe as quite as impressive as the New York one as a New York Central but it was first <laughs> Well, it wasn't yes. the first public library in America, but it was before New York, and that's really all that matters. That, that's all that matters, of course. We had hey, the Yan hey David, 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 David. Yankees and Mets not looking quite so comfortable anymore. 
Anyway, sorry. Right. That's but this is important. <laughs> right. Let's talk about it's not, but, I, but I'm laughing. <laughs> Let's talk about the history of, of libraries. When when do we first see libraries in the United States? Well, this is, uh, as is often the case, a complicated topic. So if we're thinking about the antecedents of the United States, generally the 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 starting point is seen as the creation of the Library Company of Philadelphia uh, in, in the early 1730s. And Benjamin Franklin, of course, is, is, is a key player in this and is seen as a, as a uh, you know, this is a kind of foundational moment in the history of libraries in the United States. It's, sorry, I'm building up and I said that as though it's not true, it is true. <laughs> Mm. And and the, what became the Library Company of Philadelphia was what was called a subscription library. So people basically were subscribed. It was a bit like the way streaming services work. You kind of were a subscriber that meant you could use the library, you could borrow the books. And 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 if you think about if you if you've ever worked with 18th century texts, and I know you have not as much as I have, but but you, yeah. you'll see in the in the in the beginning in the early pages in most of them where today you have all the you know, the Library of Congress information and all that stuff. The The first pages in a lot of 18th century books are subscription lists, and they're lists of people who subscribe to buy the book. So it's basically, you know, thanks to our donors, you know, this book is possible. Well, there were libraries as well. The, the, the Library Company of Philadelphia was created as a subscription library, so you could pay to be a member of it, and your support of the library would allow the library to, to buy books. And they loaned books that operated as a library. So that's important. There were libraries, of course, you know, Harvard College was established in 1630. Uh, and so you, you do get, there are 17th century libraries in America as well, but they are closed. Um, mm. the, the, the reason the library company is, is, is seen as important is it was, you know, Benjamin Franklin at that this time was a, was a printer and and so he's an artisan um these were seen as open institutions as a kind of democratization of knowledge it's an important moment in the history of of um libraries in, in north america it's followed a decade later by uh, the boston athenaeum which uh, both of these libraries still exist today the boston athenaeum and the library company of philadelphia how much um, did these things cost what was this was a subscription to these things was it expensive was it like was it accessible if I was a middle-class guy, could I? I've to got it? to confess again, despite my command of figures, which is awesome, as you, I demonstrated earlier, yes. I, <laughs> I don't have that figure in hand. Okay. But if you were a middle-class artisan, which is what Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Franklin would go on to become quite wealthy. But at this point in the 1730s, he's not. It is something that a kind of um, aspirational person mm. could could you know, buy membership in. Yeah. Again, I've got to confess, I've got to apologize. I don't well, have that figure at hand. That's okay. I mean, one thing that strikes me though, is that books in the 18th century were very expensive. Yes. And so, you know, instead of everybody going to the bookstore and saying, oh, everyone needs a copy of, you know, whatever the, the latest bestseller was, the idea of pooling your resources is a way of making a lot of books more accessible than they would have been than otherwise, because books were, you know, there weren't that many printing presses in the United States and, or the, along the line of seeds thereof and uh you know shipping in books from from britain were expensive and, and whatnot so uh yeah okay. i mean books are hard to come by but they're also 
you know, we've seen this in the past couple of years during COVID with people kind of artfully placing books behind them while they're while they're broadcasting. In fact, you've got books behind you as we as we record yes. this. Um, you know, books books are statements, they're social statements, they're intellectual statements as well. And that was true then. So some people undoubtedly joined, you know, subscribed to the library company of Philadelphia or the Boston Athenaeum in the 1730s and 40s to look smart or to send a certain message. But they're also um it's like quite, a gym membership. You can, yeah, you can exactly. join the aspirational purposes <laughs> yes. rather than. Uh, God help you if you try to quit because they make yes. it impossible. <laughs> um, so yeah, these libraries serve a number of functions and they, you know, they're also, this is, it's the early stages, or I guess it's the, it depends on how you time it, the middle stages of the enlightenment. But part of what we see during the enlightenment in the North Atlantic world is, is, um, club culture emerging. Now, these libraries aren't clubs per se, but they kind of are, because if you've got membership in the Library Company of Philadelphia, if you're a subscriber, you're saying something about yourself. Mm -hmm. And when you encounter another subscriber, you know something about them because they've done this. That's not to say you agree on everything. It's not to say you agree on your politics, but you kind of agree on your, your kind of outlook in terms of what, what you're valuing. Cool. Uh, and so th they're quite significant. It's significant in all kinds. They're significant both as um, the, the subscription libraries as uh, sources of knowledge mm. and you can read the latest books without having to buy the latest books. And that's really, really important as you know, in a world where you can't just download it on your Kindle for 99 cents um, if you want to. Uh, and, and so they're, they're really important in that regard, but they're also social signifiers as well. Sorry, you were going to say. Well, something. I was just thinking about the, you mentioned both the, the library company and the Boston Athenaeum are still around. That's fascinating because the number of, you know, institutions or clubs from the late 18th century that are still functioning right now isn't a huge number. I think that speaks to how important these institutions were then and how important they, you know, remain. Uh, the library company, I think, does you know phenomenal work in terms of supporting scholarship and, and other kinds of things, and you know they're drawing on on 200 plus years of, of work to do that. Right. I mean, they both morphed into and there's a there's a category of libraries, I suppose, that you and I are both really familiar with that, that the public more in general is less so, which is kind of research institutions and archives and, and both the Boston Athenaeum and the Library Company Philadelphia have kind of evolved into um, research libraries and archives. Mm -hmm. so, so you don't go to the Library Company Philadelphia today to borrow you know, the latest bestseller um, and, and, and read it at home. It's a different kind of institution, but that's, there are different categories of library. And again, the kind of diversity of libraries is an important element of this story. Now, I guess another early library from that time period, slightly later, I guess, uh, is the Library of Congress, which uh, I think your, your man, Thomas Jefferson, had some involvement with at one point. Do you want to talk a bit about uh, sure, that sure. as a library? Uh, I'd be happy to. So at least, at least it's early days. And, and this is, um, I, I like to think there's good Jefferson and bad Jefferson. Um, <laughs> we, we, well, it, as, as the great Jefferson scholar, Peter Onuf says, you can't work on Jefferson without being deeply conflicted. Uh, and, and so uh, where libraries are concerned, I think we're pretty much good Jefferson. So Jefferson was a great bibliophile and he read the books he collected some people just buy books to look smart um Jefferson, he cut up the books he collected yes well yes uh but but he he 
he had a very substantial library that he built his first library. He lost his early collection of books in a fire at his house at Shadwell, the family home at Shadwell in 1770. And he built a new library after that. He's got thousands of volumes um, and, and on really all subjects. He, he really is omnivorous in his, in his, his reading habits. And the, Library of Congress was created in 1800. In fact, John Adams signed the legislation to create the, the, the Library of Congress in 1800 as the federal government was moving from Philadelphia to what would become Washington, D.C., uh, the District of Columbia. So, and the, the uh, Library of Congress originally was simply intended to be exactly what its name says, a library for Congress. So, con you know, if you were a congressman, you could go to the library to reference stuff. Um, and, you know, the House of Commons has a library, for example, in the UK. This is, this is not unusual. And, 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 and so, and that, that's what it was. The War of 1812 broke out in 1812. <laughs> Sometimes things, that way. <laughs> sometimes things are exactly as they seem. Uh, and, and as many of our listeners will know, uh, the British uh, captured and burned much of Washington, D.C., many of the, the very small number of public buildings in Washington, D.C. in 1814, including the Library of Congress. Thomas Jefferson was then in retirement and offered to sell his library to the library of to the federal government to restock the Library of Congress. There are two reasons, there are two elements to this story that are important. One is if you want to be cynical, and undoubtedly you do, yes, because that's your role here, <laughs> uh, you'd say, well, yeah, but he made money off this, didn't he? And, and indeed and he, he did. Broke. And he was constantly broke in part because he spent a lot of money on books. <laughs> Um, and so financing your book addiction with selling. Okay, that's fine. Uh, but but so he was in debt. There's no doubt about that. But the really important element to this, to, to my way of thinking, is he insisted that the federal government buy his entire library, not just the books on what we would consider history, law, and political science. Hmm. Because, which was what the Library of Congress had been before. And so Jefferson's view, and he writes, he writes quite eloquently about this, basically saying a legislator should be interested in everything. And you, have, you never know what you need to know. And therefore, you need to buy the entire library. So, so 16th century poetry might be relevant at some point. So you need to have You never know. You never know. And my book, my collection of books in Anglo-Saxon, you know, could be important, could and, be important. Right. you know, probably not, but you never know. And so he sold his entire library, which at that time was one of the large, probably the largest library, private library in the United States, 6,487 books to the federal government as a lot, because he's stipulated, you've got to take them all and you've got to make them all available. And so that's why the Library of Congress becomes what it has become, which is it, it's the American equivalent of really the British library. It's a repository of all knowledge and it becomes a copyright library in the, in the 19th century. Uh, Ulysses Grant signs that legislation, which means it's going to acquire a copy of every book that has a copyright in the United States, etc. But that goes back to this crucial moment after the War of 1812 when Jefferson sells it. The other thing that's important about it, uh, about Jefferson's sale, is 
that, and I want to give a shout out to Andrina Tay. I'm at, I'm at Monticello right now, of course. Uh, Andrina is the librarian at the Jefferson Library here. And Andrina probably knows more about Jefferson's library and the acquisition of these books and the sale of these books than anybody. She's a wonderful person and she's now the head librarian here. Uh, and, and most of what I know about this is, is uh, I've learned from Andrina. Um, uh, one of the other important elements of this is, as you'll know, you visited Monticello. It's, mm. Jefferson liked domes, right? He liked round rooms. <laughs> and and um, he created a catalog for his library. And that catalog, so he had, he had so many books that he created a catalog to keep track of his own books. And as academics, we know this is actually quite valuable because as we otherwise you buy a three copies up, of the same thing. Yeah. yeah, buying a book you already own, right? And to avoid all that, he has he has a catalog. But he conceived of storing these books and at one time did in, in a in a circular room. And so his catalog was adopted as the cataloging system for the Library of Congress, which we now call Library of Congress. Yeah, when you see a Library of Congress catalog mm -hmm. number, that's the system Jefferson developed for his own personal library. And it's actually a circular system. It goes around to the, the end. So oh. you get back to the beginning. And, and he, during his retirement years, was, of course, instrumental in the founding of the University of Virginia, and which has a – it's the, the – uh, rotunda there was domed and round and it was the library the original library of the university used the same cataloging system as well and so he built a number of libraries in his lifetime the crucial one is this contribution this intervention and sale to the library of congress and the library of congress became its origin story is pretty much this crucial moment when it becomes a, a, a an institution uh, which has a very capacious approach to what it what it uh, collects, and it's committed to all knowledge as it is, as it were, hmm. um, and becomes a major research. And it will evolve into the major research library. Again, it's one of the world's greatest libraries now. In have you ever worked part. there? I have. It's it's great, yeah. and and it's and, and of course the the grand building and everything else was built much much later. But yeah, it's it's. It's an amazing place. I mean, it, it's it's up there with the British Library and places like that as a, as a kind of great public institution. But it's, I mean, it, it remains the Library of Congress. I don't know what the rules are for congressmen and women. I, I assume that they can. They have, yeah, they get different access than the rest. They, of them. I assume they do, and I wish some of them would use it. Um, but 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 <laughs> but it, it's also it, it's to some extent the nation's and the world's library as hmm. a consequence. So this is one of Jefferson's. This is good, Jefferson. I this think. is good, That's, Jefferson. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah. Have you worked at the Library of Congress? I, I, I have uh, not as much as I'd like to, but I have worked there. A few guys done some archival work there and other things. It's, it, it's a wonderful experience. Yeah. The one thing I would also say is, and, and this is something we might get to later in, in in our discussion. You know, the internet is going to transform libraries and democratize knowledge. And some mm. people have claimed that you know at one point they were going to the internet would kill off libraries. Um, thankfully, that hasn't been the case. But I use the Library of Congress all the time in my own research via, you know, its American memory website and things like this. And so, so the library, we, we can access the Library of Congress from all over the world and it's, 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 it's an amazing place. And so technology in libraries is something I don't have a lot of expertise in, but that's an important element of the story I think we're telling. Yes, I think I, well, undoubtedly. So David, tell us about the night. Let's move on to your, I've been talking yeah. too much. Let's move no, on no, to your it, sanctuary. And the, well, the, 
the public probably, library is a 19th century creation, right? Yeah, the, it is. And, and there's debates about what the first public library is. Uh, lots of people claim it's, it's Petersburg, New Hampshire in 1833, and that's as good a pick as any, I guess. There's a bunch of other public libraries that open up around that same time. Um, and I think it's an interesting moment about you know, when public libraries open, because it's right at, you know, in the middle of the great era of Jacksonian democracy, the idea that you know, uh, everybody, sh every all white men should have the right to vote and participate in, in elections. And therefore, in order to be an informed voter, you need to have access to, to knowledge to, to make you an informed voter. Uh, it's also a time period in which books become a lot cheaper. Uh, so there's sort of steam presses and whatnot that allow for mass printing and books become much more accessible. It's the idea of a you know, place where the public could go and get you know, relatively uh, inexpensive books uh, becomes prominent. Uh, it's, a, it's more popular in cities and especially in New England than in other parts of the country. And you know, these were often very small. So don't envision big modern public libraries. The first public library uh, was located basically on a set of shelves inside a general store, which also had a post office. So you could go and send your mail and, and buy your canned soup and, uh, uh, I guess they didn't have canned soup, um, buy you know, your flour or whatever and uh, pick up a library book. Um, so that, you know, the 1830s is when you start to see some public libraries. It's also when you start to see school libraries. And this is at the sort of the great era of or at least the first big wave of public education um, and states requiring or in communities requiring um, at least uh, primary school education and public schools say, look, look, we need to have materials for students to, uh, to learn from and, and a library of a sort for them to, to uh, you know, gain knowledge from and for teachers to gain knowledge from. And Harper and Brothers decide, well, that's a market for that. They publish a set of books starting in 1838 that's called the American School Library. And it's a box of books. It's, a, it's 50 books that they, kept, they put in a wooden crate and would sell to libraries. That would be, so that was the idea was like, this is sort of like the, the later day sort of encyclopedia salesman. The idea is like, this is all of the knowledge you need to have. And it had books on American history, but also Egyptology and Chinese history. It had a biography of George Washington and a biography of Napoleon. There's some sciencey things. Um, they had Swiss Family Robinson in there, the novel for whatever reason. Um, and shortly after Harper and Brothers came out with this, New York State said, look, we're gonna require that every school district buy one of these sets of things uh, to be sort of the cornerstone of their, their libraries. You start to see school libraries develop around, uh, around the same time. The, the picture though for school library or for libraries generally in, in mid 19th century is very patchworky. There are some places like New York and Massachusetts that have lots of libraries and, and public school libraries, uh, but other parts of the country where there are almost none, right? especially in the South, in, in Western states, uh, so there was a really sort of uneven development of things. A um, couple of key developments uh, in, in the late 19th century that are important. Uh, there's the professionalization of libraries 
There's the formation of the American Library Association in 1876, um, which you know speaks to the sort of it's a time when lots of professions are becoming organized, like lawyers and doctors and what have you. Uh, also in 1876, Melville Dewey comes up with his classification system, the Dewey Decimal System, which is the other big library uh, organizational system. Uh, and then the late 19th century, you have the Carnegie Libraries, uh, which I think is a really important development. Uh, Andrew Carnegie, I think is everybody knows, is a Scottish uh, immigrant from Scotland who comes and is the great steel magnet of the United States. He pays for, in part, 2,500 libraries around the world, mostly in uh, the United States, but also a bunch in Scotland. The Edinburgh Public Library he paid for, a bunch of ones in Scotland he paid for, there's a few others around the world. And by you know, the, he, the, the Carnegie money goes from the 1883 until the, the early part of the 20th century. He builds or pays for about half the libraries in the public libraries in the United States. Uh, some of the most of these are public libraries, you know, for, for a town. But he also builds libraries on lots of university campuses. Uh, actually, my office at North Dakota State University was uh, in a former Carnegie Library. Um, and the deal that Carnegie set up is fascinating. He, he basically had towns apply for him to give them money. They need to prove they have the need for a public library. They need to provide a building site. The community, he says, needs to pay for the library staff um, and it needs to provide uh, access to everybody. That's at least where Carnegie's initial um, claims. And one of the interesting things about, there's a couple of interesting things about the, the libraries that I think are worth pointing out because I think they have a huge legacy. Uh, one is, even though he says he wants libraries open for all, when it came to funding libraries in the South, Carnegie said, we're not gonna fight Southern segregation laws if, if we're gonna fund and said some separate uh, libraries for African-Americans. So there are a handful, not as many as there are for white uh, Southerners, but there were a handful of uh, libraries that Carnegie funds for African-Americans. One of the things that communities did since communities are required for staffing these libraries was instead of having the libraries be closed stacks, which is the way that most libraries, public libraries were operated to that point, they developed the open shelving system. So they could only, they could staff an entire library with one person at a desk, which I think is a real um, change about how libraries work, the ability to go back into the stacks and find your own book. I mean, I think that's one of the things I love about libraries is going, looking for one thing and finding something else. And that's a product of uh, communities trying to save money with Carnegie libraries. Um, the final thing that I think is interesting about Carnegie libraries is Carnegie, of course, is among other things known for not having the best labor practices in the world. Um, there were, you know, a series of, of industrial actions at, at uh, Carnegie factories, most famously at the Homestead Steel Strike. Um, and he was asked about this. Then he was said, people said like. You know, Mr. Carnegie, why are you giving so much money to build libraries and concert halls and not money to your employees? And he said, basically, if I paid my employees more, they would simply drink all the money away. Here, I'm giving them what they actually need rather than what they think they want, which is a read into that whatever you want to. 
I've been thinking about the Carnegie libraries, David. Um, the first one's in Dunfermline, his, yeah. his hometown, a place where he was born, not far from Edinburgh, in, established in 1883. You're right, he establishes 2,500 um, around the world, um, mainly in the United States. I think about 1,800 of them are in the U.S. So, so the vast majority of them are in their, his adopted country. You know, as, as you alluded to a minute ago, Andrew Carnegie is not an uncomplicated figure. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, he, he's literally got blood on his hands or one step removed. I mean, I, I mean, Andrew Carnegie is, is a he's a kind of ruthless robber baron uh, in, in the late 19th century um, mold. But he did he did believe in this kind of gospel of wealth, you know, that you should if you've been blessed with vast wealth, you need to put it to good use. And he seems to have put his money where his mouth is and creating these libraries and concert halls and, and so on. Um, how do we reckon with all of this? I mean, he didn't do the equivalent of saying, okay, I'm going to spend my money on, um, you know, sending rockets to the moon or sending, you know, or building a space station like yeah. our current um, um, plutocrats do, uh, or some of our current plutocrats. Um, he's a, I think he's a little more like Bill Gates. Maybe? Who was also given a lot of money to libraries. Right. Um, right. Um, now, I, I don't think Bill Gates's labor practices are equivalent to to no, people no, don't, don't like Bill Gates. But I don't think Bill Gates is Andrew Carnegie when it comes to uh, his labor practices. I want to make that clear. But but how do we how do we make sense of Carnegie and all this? Well, I think there, there was, you know, in the late 19th and early 20th century, there was there were conflicting ideas about how to make sense of, of Carnegie and, and his motivations. You know, there were people like Mark Twain said, like, look, he's just trying to whitewash his reputation here by. Uh, you know, spending a small amount of his money to build all these libraries when, in fact, you know, he's doing this on the backs of, of industrial workers who are, you know, literally dying on the job uh, for, for pennies. Um, but I mean, I think other people looked at him and said, actually, you know, here is a person who he, d he did work in his way up from relative poverty and, and um, you know, Carnegie cited his own experience as a young person uh, having access to a library, it wasn't a public library, it was his boss's library who, um, you know, he said, you know, some people chided his boss for allowing, you know, teenage boys to have access to his library, but he said it was transformative, you know, transformative for him to have access to a library. He thought that other people should have that same transformative experience. Um, you know, at least there's, there's some truth to that. I think there's lots of good that have come out of, of Carnegie's libraries and his concert halls. Uh, um, well, yeah, I agree with you. And, and I think, I mean, it, it, it raises the question of, you know, does an institution or community accept money that might have dubious origins yeah, to, put, sure. to put to good use? And it's a complicated question, in part because it depends on um, uh, just how tainted the origins of the money are, uh, but also you know, what good can be done with it. I, I would, I, I'm, I'm interested though, that these are public libraries. And on one hand, you know, that's great. And we, we mm. talk, you know, we talked at the top of the show about the importance of public libraries, both to ourselves personally, but to, to America generally. It's a bit strange, or is it to be, I mean, this is, seems like an early version of a kind of private public uh, collaboration when it comes to funding. You know, if the, if, if the funding for a public library, and I'm using that term, you know, with quotation marks right now, actually comes from a from a 
private philanthropist? Is it truly a public library? That's a good question. I mean, there's no evidence that he went in and said, actually, these are the books I want you to stock and don't stock these other books. Um, you know, he, to actually, to a large extent, he didn't pay for any of the books. He paid for the building. He paid for the building, right. And, and you know, one of the, the stipulations that he had, one of the sort of the, their framework was, look, I'm not going to just give you everything to, for the library. You, the community, have to invest in it as well in terms of, you know, find the books, finding the staff, investing in the library and having a commitment to it so that that you have skin in the game as well um and now some communities actually rejected his libraries because they said actually look we can pay for our own library thank you but uh you know in terms of you know giving the libraries to smaller communities to growing communities to to um you know places that weren't uh, all that well financially i think it's a really important legacy did he and I, I confess I don't know this. Did he? Is there a Carnegie Library in Homestead? That that I don't know, but I do know some of the earliest of the libraries he built were actually at in factory towns. Right. Okay. So, um, you know, lots of them were near Pittsburgh and, and what have you. What, one element of this that's really important, and and it it emerges especially at at the the era of the Carnegie Libraries at the turn of the twentieth century is. Um, the people in terms of the people who work in libraries and, and library science emerges as a kind of academic discipline uh, disproportionately then um, they were women. Yeah. And, and that's important. So librarianship a bit like teaching is associated with women, at least in the United States in this period. And it's one of the few areas of kind of, uh, acceptable, uh, socially acceptable uh, women's participation in the life of the mind. I mean, women, mm. of course, there are women intellectuals in the United States. They're, 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 of, of course there were. But this is a, it's quite important, not just in the democratization of knowledge, but also in providing opportunities um, for women in particular. Would you, would you agree with that? Um, I think that's definitely the case in terms of, you know, the, one of the few, it is one of the few occupations that was, was open to women in the, the late 19th century. And I think the connection with both with children and with teaching, I think, fits to that. The other thing that's going on in the late 19th century, though, that I think is relevant to our current uh, debates about libraries is this is when you start to see some of the most or the earliest and most robust efforts to ban books. And so the home of this is, is, is your, your hometown of Boston. The New England Watch and Ward Society goes after public libraries and says, look, you need to prevent people from getting access to corrupting literature. And they, they were very worried about, you know, the, uh, a public library is a place where anybody could go in and read things that would make them into a, whatever it is they thought was going to happen if you read bad things. Uh, and so the idea of having a book banned in Boston becomes a real sort of cultural touchstone in, in the late 19th century. The, the Boston Public Library ends up building a special room they called the Inferno, where they locked away all the books that, that, that were supposedly dirty or dangerous. Um, and you know, the kinds of things that, that, that they're targeting here are, are um, probably not things that, that we would run, run in today as being dirty or dangerous, but the, uh, you know, they were, they were racy novels um they were you know and it's like theodore dreiser so it's not stuff that that uh you know is racy in, in any way that that we would but this is a 
you know, obviously the height of the Victorian era. So there's a lot of concern about the undue effects of uh, racy things. Yeah, so we have a sort of paradox here, don't we? Because as you, you alluded to earlier, uh, the, the public li- the kind of public libraries in the United States really take off in the early 19th century in New England. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, first, and I think that's a, I mean, that's a legacy of the Protestant settlement of New England and, and Puritanism that becomes Congregationalism, but you know, which stress and high literacy, literacy rates and all yeah, that. Yeah, stress literacy and people's access to the Bible and the vernacular, et cetera, et cetera. And so the, the, the kind of educational tradition in that part of the country is very, very deep rooted and generally has a positive impact on U.S. culture and development. But it also leads in this movement, at least at, th- at that time, in terms of seeking to um, restrict access to knowledge. Because again, that, that Puritan legacy, that Protestant legacy, is about certain kinds of knowledge and certain kinds of um, uh, access to certain kinds of, of books and, 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 and um, literary production. So I think there's a kind of, there's a, I, I think, paradox there. Yeah, um, no, I, think, I think that's right. Um, but I think you see sort of, you know, reverberations of that today, obviously, with all of the efforts to ban various books that are seen as being corrupting, especially for, for children. Uh, in the 20th century, the thing that strikes me is the most, well, there's just like two big milestones for public libraries in the 20th century for me. One is the, the Great Depression and the WPA. Um, you know, when the Depression hit, the libraries, lots of libraries closed down because local communities didn't have tax revenue uh, to, to, to fund them. Um, and there was huge inequalities between different states over the number of libraries that were out there and how much access people had. And one of the big government uh, programs to fight the Great Depression was the, the Works Progress Administration. And they, through a number of different programs, built or renovated at least a thousand libraries. And one of the things they did in addition to sort of building physical libraries was recognizing that not everybody lived close to a public library. And so they tried to devise ways to get books, get the, instead of bringing people to the library, bring the library to the people. Uh, and so there's all kinds of projects that were devised during uh, the depression to, to give people library access. Uh, one, my, my favorite one is the Kentucky Pack Horse Library Project um, in which they had librarians on horseback, taking routes of, of 100 miles through rural Kentucky with books, taking them to people who otherwise would not have been able to go to libraries. And they have other similar projects uh, where they're taking boats by sleigh uh, in Alaska, by boat. Uh, you start to have sort of bookmobiles, which are, are still a very important part of library systems in rural communities where you have basically carts full of books that are taken to people uh, who don't live uh, close to, to public libraries. Um, and I think that's really, you know, it was a phenomenal um, project during the depression. Some of those pro- uh, processes continued after the depression, some of them, some of them didn't. Uh, but I think in terms of how do you make libraries accessible? And you mentioned the Library of Congress being accessible everywhere in the world right now. The question about how do you get library access to people who don't have library access, I think is a really critical question. Um, the other sort of big uh, library story from the sort of 
mid 20th century is how libraries fit into the civil rights movement. Yeah, tell tell us about that, David. Well, because you know, library and you know, we tend when we think of the sit-in movement, I mean, people often think of uh, coffee shops or, or or public transportation, but there were a number of sit-ins, especially very early sit-ins that were in public libraries. Uh, there was a sit-in in the Alexandria Library in 1939, so you know, much earlier than we tend to sort of think of the sit-in movement. And Alexandria was a, Virginia was a, was a pretty big city. They had a library, but the library there was only for white patrons. And African-Americans said, look, we pay taxes in this town. We deserve access to public accommodations. And they go in and they get themselves arrested trying to, they go and they say, I'd like a library card, please. And the staff turned them away, and and uh, the man who was leading the, the protest there, a man by the name of Samuel Tucker, he goes and he says, "Well, okay, I will just read here then." And he grabs a book off the shelf, and some other people with him grab books off the shelves, um, and they end up getting arrested uh, and and making a, a public case of it. Um, there's a case in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, where in eight, 1960, where eight students get arrested for trying to go in. Uh, and using the, the library there. One of the uh, eight students, by the way, was Jesse Jackson. Huh. Um, you know, and he says, based the, and the argument, they were students then. Um, and, and, you know, their argument was, look, we had an assignment for school. There was a black library in town. The black library in town, like the black schools in town, didn't have the same resources. They didn't have the books we need. The white library does. We should have access to them. Um, and a year later, uh, in uh, Tougaloo, uh, Mississippi, there's another huge sit-in uh, at the public library there, where, again, they say, look, we have needs at the library. The Black library doesn't have the resources. The White library has all of the books and all the stuff. We should have access to it as well. Um, and so there's a real movement. Uh, you know, Libraries, we don't think of them as a big site for the civil rights movement, but, but there were lots of, of sit-ins there as well. Um, and some big fights. The American Library Association has a huge fight during the civil rights movement about whether they are going to endorse integrating public libraries or, or not. And a bunch of state branches of the American Library Association actually said, and actually, no, we're leaving the American Library Association because uh, we, we don't want to endorse uh, integration. Um, and, you know, when you think about what libraries do now, libraries are one of the most integrated places in American society. You know, places where people of different ages and backgrounds and, and races and classes can, can come together. And so I think, you know, the, the fight there was just as important as, as any other. And that is by design, not just because of the word public. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, certainly in that, when, when during the period when Carnegie's building the libraries and there's a kind of the great surge in public libraries at the turn of the 20th century from 1890 to 1920, roughly. Uh, that's, of course, the great the year of the great mass immigration from southern and eastern Europe and quite deliberately and in terms of the materials that libraries make available, um, they're seen as vehicles for Americanization, not America first, but actually a way to kind of help immigrants assimilate into American life. And so it's also the period, of course, when uh, right after the, the Plessy versus Ferguson decision, when the Supreme Court endorsed segregation. And so what we see, as so often with some of the themes we develop, is there's one story for 
white Americans who are quite a diverse group in this period and becoming mm. more so, and libraries are seen as a solution to that, and another um, for, for non-white Americans, particularly black Americans. Um, and, and so, but, but one thing we've seen since the civil rights movement, as you say, is libraries are one of the few places where Americans of all backgrounds, and I should say political persuasions, mm. come together, especially public libraries, in uh, it's one of the few spaces where that still happens. Yeah, but I think that's that final point that is, I think, leading to the sort of fights we're seeing in libraries today over some people saying, look, I want my library to have access to all, all of this material about sexual orientation and race and, and what have you. And other people say, no, I absolutely do not want my public library to have those materials or, or children have access to, to that material. And, and I think the, the kind of, um, the fact that, that both sides claimed uh, you know, that the library is a place that, that should have their vision of, of American society. In the and it's most acute, of course, in school libraries, because mm. first of all, there are more school libraries, as I said at the top yeah. of the show, than there are public libraries, but also schools. You know, it, it, libraries are because school libraries have become another front in the culture war that in, over critical race theory, mm. which has become a shorthand for discussing race, uh, but also the debates, and I'm using that that term um, advisedly or ironically, the, the, the election debates over school curricula mm. that we've seen in the past couple of years and what should be included and whatnot and what, what should be excluded from the curriculum. And so that's really taken, that's encompassed school libraries. And, and we've had some pretty testy school board meetings where parents have complained about the content of books in, in, in school libraries and whether they're appropriate, um, especially with regard to sexual content. I heard a very interesting interview last week. I was um, uh, driving down here and I was listening to, uh, I can't remember the podcast, so I, I, I apologize. I should, I should be able to cite this, but it was, they, they interviewed an author from Texas whose book had been banned, a woman whose book had been banned. Um, she was a teacher and she wrote a young adult book and it's a, it's a coming of age story. And again, I can't remember the title of the books or the author, so I apologize. Um, I should find all this for the show notes, but it's a, um, it's coming of age story set in the 1930s and it involves a, a relationship that becomes sexual between a Latina, a young Latina woman and a, and a, a black high school student and, and their, their relationship. And this has proved to be, or it was identified as a controversial book. And, and um, it, it's been banned in a lot of places in Texas uh, as a consequence, but the what the author claimed in this interview was, well, what's happening is the people who are concerned about race in the curriculum have learned that they can't complain about race because if they complain about the, so she said, my book upsets them because it's about a Latino uh, black relationship, but they know they can't say that. So they make it about the sexual content of the alleged sexual content mm -hmm. because it's about protecting children. And this is a political gambit effectively. That's been pretty, that, that, that's worked. Um, that's been pretty effective because when you say you want to keep sexually explicit and we're back to the band in Boston, just what's yeah. considered explicit or not or appropriate for children. Uh, but when you want to keep that away from children, that, um, you know, that's something that that resonates, but there may be 
this author was yeah. claiming another agenda at work here. Well, the other you know time period you know when you see a lot of books being banned either from public libraries or from, from school libraries, you know, is at the height of the, the the second Red Scare in the 1950s, where you see Pete concerned that 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 communist ideas are being spread, dis, you know, being um, distributed to the American public unwittingly through libraries and the librarians were pushing um, content. Um, you know, and there's there's lots of the, the other sort of site where you see lots of debates about book banning, I think is fascinating, are about prison libraries. Right. Which, you know, prisons, uh, there's a whole history of prison libraries, which is similar, but also different from public libraries. And there have been huge debates about what books prisoners should and should not have access to and what is the you know advantage to them and, and there's very interesting ways in which you know some books get banned other books don't get banned and you know the autobiography of Malcolm X for instance often gets banned from prison libraries despite the fact that it's definitely a book that's worth reading but the fact that what it says about life in prison I guess is is uh, and about race and about religion who knows but uh, you know, Heather Thompson's recent book about Attica has gotten banned from lots of prisons because uh, they don't want prisoners reading about the history of prisons. Um, right. which is so, so, so I've got two questions for you, David, uh, yes. or I've got a statement and a question. Uh, it's a comment and a question, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> or as they say, it's more of a comment um, than a question. A question yes. So, so uh, book banning generally doesn't work. Um, because at least in the history of the United States, Mm. because usually when you call attention to to books that are being banned, it it does just that. And it highlights the book books that would otherwise be ignored. Some people Uh, in Boston, in the end of the 19th, 20th century, published their books in Boston because they wanted to get them banned. So they could say, look, banned in Boston, therefore buy it. Buy it in New York. Yeah, exactly. So so you get that. And uh, there was a furore recently about a teacher she in Oklahoma who got in trouble uh, because she shared the, the 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 QR code for the Brooklyn uh, the Brooklyn Public Library has basically said any kids who um, any school kids across the country across the United States can access our materials online so they can read things that are being banned so you know there, there's always a way around this that teacher was fired I think yeah, wasn't she think so, so there are real consequences to this uh, so, and I don't want to you know um, disregard those but. Banning books doesn't work, it seems to me. However, and, and so, so I, and I don't, I'm, I'm generally of the view we shouldn't be in the business of banning books. As somebody who loves books and reads mm. books and writes books and so on, I don't want books banned. Libraries do need to have standards of some kind, right? I mean, I mean, I think mm. we would both acknowledge that there is material that's not suitable for a school library and a pri- elementary school library is different from a high school library is different from a college library. So, in other words, I, I think the I think we're in a moral panic over books right now, or some Americans are in a moral panic over this. Combined with politics, I think some of this mm. is just chinned up. Um, but having said that, who should? I mean, there's an interesting governance decision here where parents are saying, "I don't think this is appropriate for my kids." Some parents are saying that. Some, yeah, I understand. Some parents are saying that. That's the argument that's made at these school board meetings. 
and librarians are saying, or schools, some schools are saying, no, 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 library, librarians are professionals. They're, in fact, they've been professionals for over a century. They know what they're doing. We got to trust them to buy books. There's, if, if, you cut a, if you cut out the politics and you cut out the distaste for banning books, who should be making the decisions about what's in the library? That's the question I want to put to you. What's well, an interesting question, you know, because public libraries by their nature are, are public. It's public money that the, the community is putting money towards the, both the building and the books that are in it. Uh, but then, you know, what then claim does the public have about what goes in the, the contents of those books? Um, you know, and does the public, should the public vote on each book that they buy, right? Like you, you can imagine a, a version of this uh, when it was the, 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 you know, the library company in Philadelphia where they've got all the people who are members of the library saying, okay, which of the, you know, we've collected all this money from the subscribers. We can buy 20 books. What 20 books do we want to buy? Um, you know, the question of the, the difference though, I think about libraries today is, you know, there are books people want and books people need, but they may not be willing to stand up in public and say, I want my library to have this, right? Books about health issues, books about identity issues, books about whatever that people need to be able to read without having, um, you know, somebody else looking over their shoulder, literally or, or otherwise. Um, and so I think there's a, you know, there's a very public element to libraries, but I think there's also a very private element to libraries. One of the things that happened after 9-11 was there was a fear that government would, 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 would seize library records to find out what people had checked out. And lots of librarians push back against that saying, you know, that's in and of itself a kind of censorship if you fear that government's going to take your, you know, reading list and figure out, oh, you read about, the, you know, Islam or the history of terrorism, and therefore we're going to follow you and people won't check out this thing. Uh, and so lots of libraries set up systems to automatically destroy all their records so that uh, they wouldn't be able to compel to turn them over. Um, you know, that, that the intriguing thing, obviously, about the, the library the book banning is that 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 the books that are being banned are are often books that that the people banning them have not read, you know, and I think that's a that's a problem. Uh, you haven't answered my question though, David. So, yes, I am not because I'm not sure there it's, is an easy answer to your question. What's your answer question. to the question? I think. I mean, I think librarians should have the choice. Yeah, that's I, my I trust I, librarians. That's right. Uh, my own view is I trust librarians and, and, you know, a high school librarian knows what's appropriate for high school students or should know what's appropriate for high school. And, students. and they know their community. And they, yeah, exactly. So, so my view would be to defer to the librarians on this just because a book is in the library doesn't mean your kid has to take it out. I mean, to some extent, if you're a parent who's really worried about the content, then, um, you know, express, you, you could express that or convey that opinion to your, to your child. I mean, whether that's successful or not is, is debatable. I think if you tell a kid not to read a book, they're going to want to read the book. Uh, but but I would, uh, it's a tricky question, but I, I in general, I would say I, I would trust the librarians to make the decision. Well, especially considering that children have access to all kinds of things on the internet. Fears that they're going to encounter some, you know, uh, corrupting idea in a library is, 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 a, is kind of Victorian. Um, 
That's right. There's a lot more sexual content available to them on their phones than there is in the high school. Really? Library. Okay, I didn't hear about it. This, well, this is, is what thing. I so people tell me. Listeners, um, listeners, I, this is a news flash that there's supposedly sexual and, content and, on the internet. But right. the battle, but the battle over libraries isn't really about sexual content. Right. I think I think it's about politics and about oh, I think race right. and so on. So so they, it, it, it's. Uh, so therefore, it's a slightly different discussion. But I would still defer to the librarians and the teachers. Yeah. But what and, they think and, they and you know, I feel very lots of sympathy for librarians right now because they, you know, the kinds of attacks that librarians are under in the past few years has really been, you know, there's a significant escalation about the kinds of rhetorical violence and actual violence targeting librarians. Um, you know, which is not what you thought you were signing up for when you signed up for library school. Yeah, that's right. right. Well, this is, you know, everything's politicized now in the United States because that's the world we live in, including, including libraries. Right. Uh, time for the last drops, Frank. What you got? There was an article a couple of days ago in the New York Times, David, about um, the prospect of calling a new constitutional convention. A new constitutional convention. That sounds yeah. exciting. In fact, I, I was going to suggest it, and maybe we'll do it. If, if we need a topic for next week, maybe we should think about this. Uh, now, apparently... This is an enthusiasm of certain Republican state legislators around the country who feel that if enough states call for a constitutional convention, that it would be possible, and that they see this as a means of consolidating their power. And um, former uh, former Democratic Senator from Wisconsin, Russ Feingold, for example, has written a book, and he's very worried about this and sees this as quite dangerous. Leaving aside the politics of it, you and I, in different ways over the life of this podcast, have talked about what's wrong with the American Constitution. And I don't think the idea of a new constitutional convention itself is a bad one. I, I mean, I would like the idea of constitutional reform in the United States. I think that I probably disagree with some of those state legislators as far as what I would want to see to come out of that constitutional convention. Uh, mm. But I, I don't think the idea of a constitutional convention is itself a bad one, a new one, and, and constitutional reform. There are all kinds of reasons, not least the provisions in the current constitution about why, about how it can be amended that make it very, very difficult to, to actually enact constitutional change. So I don't think this is happening tomorrow, but I, 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 I'm just, I'm intrigued by the idea. What do you think? I'm intrigued by the idea too. I'm also terrified by the idea, you know, uh, the thinking about the, you know, people who wrote the original constitution, the, the constitution in 1787, I think they'd be surprised that it's lasted this long, right? I think they envisioned a, you know, obviously they, they were trashing the Articles of Confederation and coming up with a new thing. I, th I anticipated they figured this was going to be a new government they thought would be better, but I don't think they would have anticipated that it would 200 years later still be, be operational in a very different world. Um, so, you know, I think we're probably overdue for one, but yeah, the thought terrifies me. Yeah, I mean, Jefferson, in one of his crazier notions, wanted a new constitutional convention every 19 years. He, he reckoned that a generation was 19 years. 19 years. Okay, yeah, that seems like a random That would have number. been a recipe for disaster. And and uh, clearly, we, we wouldn't want a new constitu constitution every 19 years or every generation. But you know, there are mechanisms in place in the Constitution to change it, to amend it. I mean, the, the, the framers of the Constitution understood that it shouldn't be permanent or certainly shouldn't be graven in stone. Um, 
And so I, I'm, intri- I'm intrigued by the idea, but we, we, the Constitution itself is, is, has become an obstacle and a uh, barrier to change on, in two ways. One is it's difficult to change, so the, its actual provisions are difficult. But the other is it's now so old that people feel like it can't be changed and shouldn't be changed, and it's assumed a kind of sacred um, it's sacred scripture now in, in the kind of American civic religion. Now, we have changed the Constitution a lot over the years, yes. uh, particularly in your period. It's very different from the, from the original Constitution. But the notion that there's a kind of unbroken line going back in this constitutional tradition is itself a barrier to change. Anyway, I think the, the, the mm. idea of a constitutional convention itself is something we might want to discuss in greater detail in the future. Okay. But my last drop is to recommend this article to people so if you just go to the new york times and okay. search constitutional convention you'll find it. okay well i've got the i'll put the link in the show notes yeah what about you david what's your uh, uh well one thing that's uh i found is very exciting uh thinking about the start of the new school year is there is a new uh ap advanced placement ex- exam uh course that's being introduced this year uh, on a limited number of schools but it's a ap course in african-american studies uh and i think that's a really Phenomenal innovation and introduction to the AP curriculum for our British listeners. These are optional exams that you can take that are supposed to be at the university level that you take in high school. There's a very rigorous curriculum attached to them and some exams. Um, And the APs have traditionally been very Eurocentric in their orientation, I think it's safe to say. And so the introduction now of of an African-American studies course and exam, I think is a, a really interesting uh, development. And I'm looking forward to seeing how that, that develops over time. Excellent. David, uh, what, what, there's, a, there's a claim that AP courses are partially responsible for the decline of the humanities at university level because students are getting college credit for taking courses in history and literature sure. and things like that. Do you, I mean, you've taught high school in America. I taught high school, yes. Is, is, this, is this part of the problem with the decline of the humanities? No, because I think if you teach those classes well at the high school level, and sometimes they're not long, sometimes they're not, I think they, they actually do the opposite. They get kids excited about history or about the humanities and makes them therefore more likely to, to you know, sign up for, for history uh, at the university level. You know, if there are a handful of kids who, who take it uh, and then decide not to do the gen ed class, I don't think that's... This, the structural problems for humanities are bigger and broader than that. Um, so take that for what you will. But uh, okay. okay, all right. Until next week, Frank. Cheers. Bye. Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh. And Frank is Professor of American History and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.